Hello, hello, all my friends online. Pastor Wayne Hansen from Summit Church of Castle Rock, Summit Church of Douglas County here today. Going to be doing a teaching called The Five Gifts of the Corinthians. I'm reproducing this. We had some audio trouble on Sunday, and I just felt like this teaching was so important. I make sure wanted to get it out to you. If you weren't able to make it to church on Sunday, or if you're in my extended family and friends and, and my social media uh, networks, because this is such a powerful teaching. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, and even if, you, even if you're not, it's good for you to brush up on some of these concepts and these truths from 1 Corinthians 13. And I think it's going to really, really bless you and help you today. So, hey, will you do me a favor? Would you share this link with a friend? Pastor Wayne H. everywhere. I'm, it's fa I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube. Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, LinkedIn, Instagram, all those various places. If you're watching this right now and it's been a blessing to you, would you just click that share button and let someone know that you've enjoyed this teaching. Also, uh, we're doing a school supplies drive, a back to school uh, school supplies drive on August 1st. We're calling it Backpack Sunday. We're going to be praying over all the teachers and over all the students, just praying for a, a God's blessing on them this school year. We'll pray for no mask mandates or shutdowns that kids will be able to get back to school and have sort of a normal school year and be able to learn again, be able to do all the things that they've been doing before the pandemic started. But we'd love to have you join us here in South Denver metro area uh, at 4240 North Perry Park Road, just south of Sedalia, and have you be a part of in-person worship. But of course, if you can only watch online, that's fine as well. Let's get into teaching here today. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, or not 17, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There's only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. And we're looking at five different gifts that we get from the church in Corinth. I love getting gifts. I love giving gifts. One of the favorite gifts my, my wife likes to get is a heart-shaped box of chocolates or roses or jewelry or some some kind of demonstration of my love and my intimacy with her, something that only I could give her. And I think God wants to give you gifts that only he could give you. And so we're going to learn about these five different gifts. Of course, the first gift that we look at in 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter, what do you think it is? It is Love. Yeah, love is the most amazing gift. And I want to just actually just read 1 Corinthians 13 word for word. It's probably the most poetic piece of language ever written um, by the Apostle Paul in the Greek language. But I think it was written by the Holy Spirit and just transcribed by Paul because it really demonstrates the unconditional love of God. So let's read it here together. It says, If I could speak in all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others... I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal if I had the gift of prophecy, if I could understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge. And if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never 
loses faith. It's, it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages, special knowledge will all become useless. But love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put childish ways behind me. Now, I, I, we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything. Then being when I'm in heaven, seeing Jesus face to face. Then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. The first and greatest gift we want to talk about here is love. The love of God is not like man's love. It's not like sexual love or erotic love or even just phileo love, brotherly love. It's an unconditional love. It's a supernatural love. The Bible says that God is love, that he is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. When I receive God, I receive his love into my heart, and the very character and nature of God is love. The personality of Jesus was compassion, grace, forgiveness, peace, all these things that we know about the person of Jesus Christ. It's pretty powerful to think about that greatest gift of being the very essence of God himself. If you want to have a great marriage, let love be the center of it. Let love be the driving force, the motivator. Do you want, do you want to enjoy the work that you do, even the work that you do for others? We'll do those things out of love. We know we do so many things for our children because we love them. We sacrifice for them. The people who are most successful in business are often those who are working on behalf of others. They're working hard for their customers or they're working hard along with and for their co-workers, right? When we let love be the motivator, suddenly hard things become much more easy because we do them because we want to do them. And uh, it's, if, if you're having a hard time with that, ask God to put a love in your heart for other people and for the things that move him. Say, God, the things that you love, help me to love the things that you love. And the things that you hate, help me hate those things that you hate. And may I become more and more like Jesus every day. That's a pretty, pretty great gift. So that's the gift of love. The second gift, we want to look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'm going to read the first few verses. And, and this kind of shifts gears. What's interesting about the love chapter is it's sandwiched between two other chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, the love chapter is in the middle, but 1 Corinthians 12 talks a lot about gifts. It talks about uh, specialty uh, ministry offices and callings, that it's God himself who gives the gifts. We don't decide ourselves what gift we want. God decides what gifts we get. And then people have different roles. People have different um, abilities. People have different knowledge. They have different positions in the kingdom of God that they're supposed to use the gifts that they have that God has given them to do great things. And then here we have the love chapter. How do you love people? How do you love God unconditionally? How, you, how do you lay down your rights and take up the responsibilities of one of God's disciples? And then 
Chapter 14 talks about tongues and prophecy and their proper use in a public church setting. And this might seem like an odd teaching if you've not been a part of a church where people speak in tongues or people prophesy or worship is exuberant and loud. Maybe you've gone to more of a liturgical church where they just read from a prayer book or it's very quiet, you know, that any any noise is really supposed to be disrespectful. Well, I didn't grow up in those kinds of churches. I grew up in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Uh, for a lot of my ministry, I've been in Bible-based uh, hybrid kind of churches that are kind of Bapticostal, Baptist, Bible-believing, and uh, Holy Spirit-driven kind of churches. And this kind of gives a uh, an overview of what proper use of the gifts within a corporate worship setting would look like. Here's a little bit of the context. The church in, in Corinth was filled with Greek believers and, of course, Jewish believers. All the disciples originally were Jewish. So there were some cultural clashes going on in, in the church in Corinth, uh, which was a Greek and Roman city. And people were sp speaking in tongues, singing in the spirit, uh, pacing the floor, probably flopping around on the floor, uh, doing all kinds of outrageous things, doing prophetic things. Um, and there was actually utter chaos going on inside of the church. I don't know if you've ever been in a church that's very chaotic. Um, sometimes joy, joy can seem chaotic, but uh, this was truly chaotic. Everyone was speaking in tongues at the same time. Everyone was prophesying at the same time. There, there were wives and women in the church that were, that were yelling across the room to their husbands, Hey, what's that preacher saying over there? What's he talking about? Hey, explain it. What's going on? And the church was just wild. And Paul says, you know, I think that your, your meetings are doing more harm than good. I think we need to, we need to dial this in and, and bring a little order to your services so you'll know what's appropriate behavior when you come to church. And so let's look at uh, chapter 14 here. He says, uh, let love be your highest goal. This is 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities that the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God. Since people won't be able to understand you, you'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But the one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. In other words, prophecy is in a language that the people can understand. Tongues is, utter is uttering mysteries with their spirit. He says, I wish that you could all speak in tongues, but even more I wish you would all prophesy. For prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues. Let me say that again. Prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues, unless someone interprets what you are saying so that the whole church will be strengthened. See, when we get into side gifts and uh, trying to demonstrate the power that we have in the Spirit, we begin to draw attention to ourselves rather than pointing, pointing people to Jesus. We have to be very careful, but making sure that everything in church is done decently and in order. And when it comes to the gift of tongues, we don't forbid speaking in tongues. We know that tongues can be used in two different ways. It can be used as a personal prayer language where the believer can pray in the Spirit and while they're praying in the Spirit, they're uttering mysteries with their spirit. They're encouraged. They're strengthened. Sometimes maybe the God will give them a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or insight into a problem. 
Sometimes uh, you may get marching orders. Maybe God will put something on your to-do list like, hey, call that person. Hey, go do this one particular thing. Or maybe you'll get a rebuke. Sometimes if I'm praying in the Spirit at home in my quiet time, I'll get the Lord correcting me on something. Say, hey, you shouldn't have said that. Or you spoke too harshly there. You need to say you're sorry. You need to make an amends for this thing that you did wrong. And it's only when I submit my spirit to the Holy Spirit and I let his convicting power come in that I can get that kind of guidance, that kind of help, that kind of strength. Sometimes I even suffer from insomnia pretty often. So in the middle of the night, sometimes I'll just go quietly to my office and I'll put on some worship music and I'll just begin to pray in tongues. I'll just begin to minister to the Lord with my spirit. And as I do, I get encouragement. I get peace. If I'm disturbed about something, oftentimes nothing has changed. The circumstances haven't changed at all, but my spirit is strengthened. My spirit is encouraged, and I have that peace that surpasses human understanding. doesn't make sense that I should have peace, but I have it anyway because the spirit gifted me with, with it. And so tongues and prophecy in the proper, proper use in the church, he likens it to orchestra. Uh, like a, there's different violins and horns and flutes and everything in the orchestra. And they're all playing different notes. It's going to be a chaotic mess. But if the orchestra is playing the same melody and harmony and they're working in concert with one another, beautiful music comes from all the instruments playing together and in unison together and in harmony with one another. And so that these, these are the gifts of tongues and prophecy in the proper use. And so he skips here to verse 13 in our reading. And let's just read it here. He says, So anyone who speaks in tongues should pray also for the ability to interpret what is said. For if, for if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. Well then, what shall I do? I will pray in the spirit, and I will also pray in words that I understand. I will sing in the spirit... And I will also sing in words that I understand. For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you are saying? You'll be giving thanks very well, but you won't strengthen the people who hear you. So it's important that we... We do things properly, decently, and in order. And if you're going to speak in tongues in church, you don't do it so loud that you become a distraction to everyone else. Unless you know that this is a message for everyone to hear, and you have the interpretation of what it is you're about to say in the Spirit. And that's the two different kinds. There's a tongues for personal edification and tongues for prophetic utterance. And so, verse 22 here of our passage, and I'll just pull it up. Here on the iPad says, So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your church meeting and they hear everyone speaking in an unknown language, they'll think you're crazy. But... If you are all prophesying, in other words, ministering the, word, the will and the words of God in a language that the people understand, and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they'll be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. So as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to, to their knees and worship God, declaring, God is truly here among you. 
See, when we foretell and foretell the will of God, we say, God, you're holy. God, you're magnificent. You're coming in glory. You're coming in power. God, you're at, at work in the earth today. You're convicting us of our sin. You're showing us where we're wrong. You're helping us to become more like Jesus. When we start to foretell and foretell the will of God within a meeting like that, in whether it's in worship or in preaching or encouragement one-on-one, -on -one, and we know the Spirit is speaking through us, other people hear that, people who are not believers. Sometimes we'll hear that and they'll go, boy, I need to know God like that. I wish I had a relationship with God like that. I think I need to be con confessing my sin to the Lord and becoming more like Jesus. People find a conviction because they know somehow deep in their hearts, their spirit begins to testify like, yeah, you need this. You need the word. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. You need secret strength. You need self-edification. You need the power of God. Well, let's look here at verse 26 in our passage here. He says, well then, brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, and another will tell some special revelation that God has given. One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues, and they must speak... <laughs> They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. If no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meetings and speak in tongues to God privately. And here we go. So he says, let two or three people speak in tongues. Make sure there's an interpretation. And then verse 32, and I've highlighted this in my Bible. You might want to highlight it in yours. Verse 32, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. Now, if you've ever been into a chaotic service where there's no order, people are shaking, people are flopping on the floor, and everyone's yelling out in tongues and singing in the spirit in different keys and wild things are happening. That's not, that's not an orderly service. It may be, there may be real, real divine things happening that's by the Spirit, and there may, could be distractions or people emotionally disturbed or people just with emotional outbursts with no connection to God at all are just responding, uh, re reacting to everything that's happening to them around them. A person who's truly uh, speaking on the Lord's behalf, they're grounded in the Word. They're able to control their own spirit. They can take turns in prophesying. They're not out of control. Nothing in God's control is out of control. I've heard that said before. I love that. And then verse 39 here, Paul finishes this chapter. He says, So, dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't for forbid speaking in tongues, but be, be sure that everything is done properly and in order. And boy, I think I just think that's so powerful. Uh, if we'll do that, then then people are not going to be confused about our message. They're not going to think, "Huh, maybe I want what these people have." When we get into a church setting where everything is chaos, they don't think I want what these people have. They think these people are crazy, and I'm never coming back again. Christians are nuts. <laughs> that's what they, that's what they truly think. And so we have to be very careful about how we treat the gifts and not to. Uh, manifest what we think is a gift, but it's just us trying to draw attention to ourselves. Well, that brings us to chapter 15 in our study here today. And the third gift, so the first gift is the gift of love. The second gift is tongues and prophecy. And the third gift is the gift of resurrection. The gift of resurrection. And Paul 
says, you know, this is the message I've been preaching ever since I came to Jesus. He says, I want to remind you, dear brothers and sisters, the good news that I preached to you before. And you welcome the good news that I was preaching. And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, this is what I passed on to you. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. And then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted God's church. And so Paul is saying, you know, this is the message we preached that Jesus didn't just die and his spirit went to heaven. His body was buried, put in a tomb. God raised that body up to new life. He glorified that body. And 500 people saw him ascend into heaven. In the same way, we are going to have these bodies reassembled and glorified at the great day of resurrection. So this whole idea of Christianity isn't just a nice thought. It's not just an ethereal spiritual feeling. But we're talking about a physical, bodily resurrection. And of course, this was really important for Paul to preach to the Greeks because the Greeks really had never seen anyone resurrect. It was not a part of their culture. They thought it was ridiculous. The Romans thought people don't come back to life from, from the dead. Of course, the Jews had seen this with Elijah and Elisha. They had seen some resurrections in the Old Testament. But Paul's saying this, there's going to be a physical resurrection. It's going to happen. This body, this corrupt body, is going to take on a new form and be, be perfected in, in the eyes of God. There's going to be a bodily resurrection of the dead. In verse 21, let me pull it up here on, on my old iPad here so you can read along with me. It says, so you see... Just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So there's going to be a physical, bodily resurrection. Your corrupt body, and maybe you've got achy joints and bones. Maybe you're handicapped in a certain way. Maybe you're deaf in one ear. Maybe one of your legs don't work. God's going to perfect your body and bring you into a perfect alignment with health and, and, and perfect peace and serenity with him in his presence. And, and you'll be like that forever. And that, isn't that going to be a wonderful thing to think about? So, he, he's addressing this with the Greeks who saying, mean, how can this happen? How can the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will we have? He says, what a foolish question. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. He says, when, you, when we die in these, these corrupt bodies, it's a seed for eternal life. And these bodies are going to be resurrected in a physical way, not just a metaphorical or a metaphysical way, but in a physical way that can be measured. And it's going to happen. Here's what he says in verse 51 in our, in our passage. He says, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. When the last trumpet is blown, 
For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Skipping down to verse 58, it says, So now, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. Because you know that nothing you ever do for the Lord is ever wasted. Everything we do for the Lord matters. Nothing is wasted. I know that sometimes we feel like God doesn't notice. God doesn't care. God doesn't realize all that I've suffered. He doesn't realize everything that I've gone through. Can I tell you? Every prayer matters. Everything you suffered is watched and noticed by God. He's going to come and reward you according to what you have done. He's going to reward you according to how you have suffered. God knows every tear that you've cried. He knows every pain that you've gone through. Anytime we, especially when you've suffered unjustly, when you've been treated wrongly, there's going to be a physical resurrection from the dead. And then Paul, of course, uh, comes in chapter 16 to talk about the gift of giving. So the last one was the gift of resurrection. Number four is the gift of giving. You know what? It, it is a gift to give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he, he just gives the church a little coaching here on about how to receive an offering. It says, on the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. In other words, give in proportion to what you've earned. In the Old Testament, they call this a tithe, or they call it the first fruits. And we give God the first, we give him the best, and we, we want him to bless all of the rest. In fact, when I give him the first 10%, he blesses the other 90. And I've heard it said this way, 90% blessed is always more than 100% squandered on myself. Putting the first fruits principle uh, into effect. If I'll give God the first and the best, the, that first 10%, 90% blessed is always more than 100% squandered on myself. And I found that to be true. And many people, uh, part of our church and people who are a part of my streams here of, of ministry and spirituality are tithers. You know that's true. And if you've fallen out of the habit of tithing and giving offerings, I encourage you to get back into that. Because there's a blessing tied with giving God those first fruits. And then Paul finishes this uh, particular letter with this in verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Our Lord, come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Which brings me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians is a follow-up issues. He writes a letter, and there's probably a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because he alludes to some things that we don't see in the first letter. But I want to give you a quick overview. As, as in the next couple weeks, we're going to be studying 2 Corinthians. Here's the breakdown. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about that uh, he, he's defending his own ministry because he's being attacked by the Judaizers. Chapters 4 and 5, he talks about the death and suffering and ministry. Um, chapters 6 and 7, he talks about living as Christians. Chapters 8 and 9, he talks about the joy of giving. And chapters 10 through 13, he again, he defends his apostolic authority. And here's a verse that's worth, worth memorizing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father, the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We'll be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So the final gift that I want to talk about before we finish here today is the gift of comfort, especially during times of difficulty. Have you ever gone through a difficult time? You ever wish that you had the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Well, you can. You can have His comfort. If you welcome His presence into your life, this talking about the, the gifts of the Spirit before, talking about having a prayer time, letting the Holy Spirit minister to you and through you as you get to your prayer closet. And there's something so powerful about setting aside a quiet place somewhere in your home or maybe in your car or truck, or going for a walk, where you just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and you speak to God audibly back to Him. I think there's something really powerful about hearing yourself pray, or writing your prayers down in a prayer journal. Because then you can, go, you can flip back and go, oh look, He answered that one. Oh yeah, I was going through that difficulty, He answered that one too. Wow God, you're amazing. Well, this second epistle to the Corinthians, he greets them, of course. He says, may the God of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And he talks about comfort, that you would comfort others with the same comfort that you've been comforted with. And let's look here at verse 6. He says, he says, even when you are weighed down with many troubles, or with troubles, it is, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things that we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort that God gives to us. Isn't that amazing? When we need comfort, God is right there to give it. He's right there to be with us. And Paul goes to talk, on to talk about some of his travel plans and some of the change of plans that, you know, God is, is, is moving him and moving him around in ministry. And I want to finish with this little passage here, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment Again, first fruits. The first, Jesus was God's tithe of, of the kingdom to the world. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is the first installment that guarantees everything that he has promised us. Now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason that I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. But that does not mean that we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you'll be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. He says, you don't stand firm because I corrected you, or because I rebuked you. You stand firm because you stand firm in Christ, in the faith that you've been given. Well, maybe you've stuck with me this this long and this far, and you're like, I, I, I really think it's curious and interesting, all this stuff about the church and about tongues and the love of God, but I don't even really know God. Well, there's a gospel, there's a gospel presentation I want to give you. I call it the colors. Think of these five colors, black, red, white, green, and gold. We make these little bracelets sometimes in kids' church. We've done it in, in adult church sometimes too. It's black. There's little beads. Black, red, white, green, and gold. And each of those colors represents something. 
Black represents the darkness and confusion of our sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin is the bad things that we've done that are displeasing to God. There are things that he has commanded us not to do, but we do anyway. It's also the, the good that we know to do, but we leave it undone. The red represents blood. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of sheep and goats and bulls and animals that covered the stain of the guilt of, of Israel and the Jews. But Jesus came and shed his blood once for all time for all humanity, where those who put their trust in Christ will have their sins forgiven. And that leads us to the white bead. White represents purity, sinlessness, uh, no more corruption. You see, Jesus' blood doesn't just cover our sin, but it removes the stain of our guilt. It justifies us and makes us as if, as if we'd never committed sins. And then green represents new life. What happens in springtime? Everything that was dead and dark and broken and gone, all of a sudden new shoots, new flowers, new blades of grass, new leaves start coming out on the trees and the mountains and the meadows explode with new life. That's what happens when you get the new life of God inside of you. Let the, the Holy Spirit move in you because when you get Jesus, you get his spirit inside of you. Just begin to manifest the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to think new thoughts. You begin to get the mind of Christ. The old things that you used to do, you don't want to do so much anymore. Or if you do them, you're not happy about it anymore. You're not content in your sin like you used to be. And new life is springing up inside of you. And that leads me to gold, the gold bead. Not only do we have new life when we invite Christ in, but we have a promise of heaven one day. The streets are paved with gold. There's pearly gates that will open, all made from a single pearl. There's, there's going to be so many rewards. The Bible says that it hasn't even entered the heart of man all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And I think that's not just in this life, but it's in the life to come. God's got wonderful things planned for us, and heaven is your new home. It's your new citizenship. You belong to uh, a, a, a new Lord now. You don't, want, you don't serve yourself anymore, but you serve God. Well, if you need to do that, if you need to commit your life to Christ, would you just pray this prayer with me? It's a simple prayer of just opening your heart to him, asking him to forgive you of your sins, and asking him to become the leader and the Lord of your life. If you're ready to do that, will you pray this prayer with me right now? Say, Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that God raised you from the dead according to the scriptures. Please come into my heart, be my savior, and be my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. We'd love to encourage you in whatever ways we can. And we'd love to see you, of course, on a Sunday morning if you're here in the South Denver metro area. If you're not, if you watch this and you're not involved in a local church family, can I just tell you, just look for a Bible-believing church somewhere nearby and start this relationship with God. Your life will never be the same if you give your life to Jesus and you find a local church and you pour your life into it and into the deep friendships that you could find with, the new, with, the, with new believers and other people that are involved with that fellowship. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to give you the blessing, and there will be some ways in which you can partner with the ministry here at the end. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you, lift your countenance, and give you his peace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Amen. God bless you. Thanks for watching today. Hope you can join us very soon sometime at Summit Church of Douglas County. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the ministry of Summit Church and the daily outreach of Wayne Hansen. You can support our ministry in many ways. Click the donate button on our Facebook page, Summit Church of Castle Rock. Visit our webpage, mysummitchurch.com, and click the online giving link. Or mail your donation to Summit Church of Castle Rock, 200 South Wilcox Street, Box 243, Castle Rock, Colorado, 80104. Or finally, text your gift to 303-625-9434 and follow the prompts using your smartphone. You can also support us by connecting with our online community. Comment, like, share, follow, and subscribe on our various social media channels. Of course, we appreciate you joining us in daily prayer. I'm Sean Rima, and on behalf of Pastor Wayne and the Summit Church family, take care and have a great week. Remember, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life.